Developers have a need for speed to meet market demands, and application security needs to ensure that data and privacy constraints are met. Unfortunately, that can slow down delivery. So, is it even possible to deliver secure software quickly? Enter Secure Coding, brought to you by GuidePoint Security's Application Security Services. Secure coding is more than a process, it's a cultural shift. One that will make it possible for both developers and AppSec to build in security while applications are being developed. Visit our AppSec resource hub to learn more at securityweekly.com slash guidepoint. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. We just talked with Merritt Bear about why security intention is not enough and security design work needs to be a collaboration with engineers as much as the security exceptions process needs to understand what engineers need. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with John Kinsella, and it's just about time for the news after this one announcement. InfoSec World 2023 is heading back to Orlando, Florida. Join the InfoSec community at Disney's Coronado Springs Resort, September 23rd through 28th. Experience world-class learning and networking through enlightening keynotes, informative panel discussions, interactive breakout sessions, hands-on workshops and summits, and more. As a Security Weekly community member, you can receive 20% off your InfoSec World 2023 tickets using code, it's a long code, ISW23-SECWEEK20. Just go to securityweekly.com slash InfoSecWorld2023 and we'll help you out. And uh, this is another, speaking of helping people out, John, we need to help people out with uh, the, the news of the week. We actually have quite a few articles here. And we also had a um, distant voice of Akira joining us, just kind of recommending that it, one, one of these articles as well. And I know uh, you and Akira got to chat on, a, on an episode a couple, a couple weeks ago. So why don't you kick us off with talking about uh, Zap? We did. And uh, hi, Akira, if you're listening, we miss you. Um, so yeah, she found this one. Uh, the, the, the TLDR is, um, as it says in the title, is Zap is joining um, SS, SSP, which is the Linux Foundation-based um, uh, security group, which you know folks are looking at it for different reasons. We've talked about it a few different times here over the last few mm -hmm. weeks, months. Um, in this case, uh, it looks like two of the, uh, um, how do I say, core, I'd say core individuals for um, Zap are actually going to be on payroll with SSP. So. Um, while they've been doing this stuff in the past, they're now going to get paid basically by Linux Foundation to work on this. Um, so this post basically is, uh, um, hey, we're moving. Um, big love and thanks for everything that OWASP has done for us. But uh, we feel at this point we've we've gotten what we can out of the OWASP community and we're, we're moving over here to this other playground. So um, interesting. You know, we've covered a few stories over this last year about, um, you know, the uh, public letters to OWASP. Um, some folks thinking OWASP should change direction. OWASP decided not to change direction, and um, this this is you know this is just one per, one one org. So we'll see what happens. But it's it was interesting to see a very well known uh, not org but project move like this. In, indeed, and you know we we talked in the the interview about maturity and mature programs bringing on security architecture processes. This perhaps is a maturing of. Um, you know, Zap has been around for a while, but maybe maturing of support is what I'm going for here. Mm. Like the Linux Foundation clearly has a history of investing in supporting the projects. And I'll be curious as to watch how OWASP builds up community members, something like that, just what, what directions they take. And you did mention, um, you know, we've covered this in the past. We covered a couple of open letters. One of them was from um, Mark Curfee, who's part of Crash Override Network. And you've got another article here also from uh, Crash Override. So kind yes. of related. I do love their name. So uh, Crash Override is coming out this open source project called Chalk. Um, and at first the name doesn't really make sense. And then as you sort of hear the story, I read this post, it's like, oh, that's cute. So the, the, the problem they're trying to solve here is 
um, if you think about if if you're in a medium to large size org and you've got like you've got this software, um, like you're looking at a Git repo. Uh, is this being used in production? When's the last time it was deployed? Um, which version is deployed? So there's, there's a lot of questions, right? And like there's there's hacks we go through as developers, at least I have in previous lives of like, how can I dynamically put the version number into my Go build through, through doing a, you know, a command line variable substitution so that when they look at the screen, they get to see the version number. And there's ways you do this, right? But it's, it's, it's always a bit of a hack and everyone does it differently. And then the other side, um, you know, we were talking about cloud. So imagine you are a, um, at a, a cloud-based company and uh, you know, you've got this service running on Lambda and it's compiled and you know, probably it came from one of you, well, it definitely came from one of your software teams. You think you know which software team it came from? I'm thinking now, like say you have like 500 developers, right? Who who, who released this? Um, and again, there's there's ways that, that people have come up with on Amazon. You can do like tags, right? Like owner tag or um, department tag or billing codes or different things like that. But the, all this is sort of, um, sorry, but nebulous. Uh, and, and really what they're trying to do is is codify that and make it turn into a standard. So they're working on an open source project that um, will do things like it can actually stamp um, into, it can become part of your build process. So when you do a release, it can go ahead and stamp that incident code saying, hey, this release happened on this date, this time, this environment. Um, and then vice versa, uh, when you're building and releasing a binary, uh, you can put in that the artifacts of that build saying this came from this location. Here's the owners. Here's who you contact if there's a problem. Here's the AppSec master for it or, or what have you. So, um, and those are what they're calling chalk marks, right? Like, you know, it's it's think about, um, I don't know, to me, what comes to mind is ET and a breadcrumb, but some way of actually like leaving a mark behind where you came from if you're walking down the sidewalk, maybe. So, um, it, my one gripe about it, it's an open source project, which is still closed, closed source, and they're looking for people to um, email them to or fill out a form to, to sign up and see it early. I'd much rather seen these things actually developed in open source from the beginning, but I, I get it. It's it's They've got bigger plans. So um curious to see where those bigger plans go. Uh, you mentioned ET, and I'll, now I'm hungry for some Reese's pieces, so I can't really add to that. Other than perhaps, I, I do. I, I always mention asset inventory because it's one of the easy phrases to say that it's like, you know, everybody gets it wrong, or nobody has a good asset inventory. Easy to say, hard to do. This is interesting because it addresses the reason for an asset inventory without creating that inventory. In the sense of, I found this binary, this blob. Where did it come from? Who owns it? And that part is actually really compelling to me. So um, yes, hopefully we don't have the next year's DEF CON Black Hat talk that is talking about, you know, wiping chalk off the streets or, you know, play, playing with that pun or the uh, the chalk outline of the um, corpse after they've busted someone. But now I've totally destroyed. I'm taking, taking this, this metaphor too far. So let's talk about something else in on the development side of things, John. Last week, I had thrown in an article about Clang and the future of Clang-based tooling. This was a blog from Trail of Blitz, <laughs> Bits, as they blitz through uh, security tools and vulnerabilities, as, the, as their um, excellent research does. But it caught my eye because, yes, the Clang AST is a lie. Everything is a lie about what Clang and LLVM does. And they're right. I didn't realize that the, the, the I love Clang. I've mentioned in the past before about an LLVM for their static analyzers, all, the, all their analyzers to help 
find bugs and many security-related bugs. And I always assumed they did work off of the AST, which is one of the reasons that uh, people like SEMGREP. You can build an AST, then run your regular expressions, run your grep over the AST, and that's much more powerful to understand what the, the primitives, the components of this language is, rather than, oops, I got a false positive because this was a to-do comment or something like that. But Clang apparently works on the CFG, so the, the control flow rather than the AST when they do all of this analysis. And rather than going too deep into the weeds now, what the researcher is really saying is that I love Clang, I love LLVM, but it's not researcher friendly in terms of setting up hooks, setting up types of analysis I want to do to find weird, obscure, and meaningful types of flaws. So I thought that was really neat and perhaps a really good reminder um, of turning compilers, turning tools to be security friendly, especially with LLVM and WebAssembly. Those are two great tastes that go great together. And um, we hope to see not only WebAssembly secure by design help us within the AppSec world, but some tooling and analysis be able to um, find vulnerabilities that are surprising people. Yeah, I thought this was, um, I, I hope they turn this into a series. I think would be really interesting because like I think a lot of what we think about out there with um, these tools we use, we think we know what they are. We think we know how they work. <laughs> right. But un until you actually, and it takes a lot of effort, right, to actually dive underneath. This is a, a, a DARPA funded um, blog post in part, um, but it takes effort to actually dig through these things and figure out how, you know, how does this thing work? And, you know, you mentioned too, there's a few others in there. Um, LibClang is a lie. Their compile commands.json is a lie. So it's like it, it sort of gives you a sense of like, and, and we've talked through before how some of this stuff works, but like it, someone originally designed something some way and they start coding and start implementing it. Either it's too much effort to go back and do it in a different way, or maybe they've got their own reasons. Um, and as you were talking about there, Mike, what I was thinking is, well, okay, big deal. I can't compile my, my C, C++ and, <laughs> and use a tool on it. I'll just go and use, you know, someone else's compiler. And then I started thinking, especially when you said, well, um, yeah, WASM is like, as you go more and more, if you have more and more support and this becomes more, more, more and more of a standardized tool, um, yeah, people want to have that be part of their tool chains and have that plug into an ecosystem of security tools, not go in, in this one case, use something else. Or maybe there's a security flaw, which will only um, manifest when it's compiled with, with Clang. So um, yeah, it's really interesting to just stop and think about um, and I know we, I, I say that a lot, but it's, it's interesting to like read through this and go, what do you think of that thing doing and how it's actually doing and what it's doing? Um, it, it's good to know probably for a more um, senior in principle, either security or developer type. So it's, it's a pretty neat read. It's a neat read. And I'll riff on that. We, we were talking about Zap. The other mm -hmm. big uh, proxy is Burp. And we covered an article from Portswigger who was talking about you know what I how I research. And he one of the gists was, become an expert in something, do a deep dive into how something works. And there's a parallel here in the sense of how does Kling actually work? Kling is a lie. I need to, you know, I need to do a couple things to get the AST to do the analysis. That's much like I want to dive into HTTP3. I want to dive into a protocol to figure out what, how does the spec work and you know, how is it written versus how are the implementations really work? And those can be really fruitful places to find some bug bounty um, areas. Now, other t areas people could deep dive into are Web3 in the crypto space, because uh, speaking of compilers and languages, there's um, 
some fun things that I'm being polite. And I'm just going to smile because I, I, I need you to take, <laughs> take take this off my hands and start writing. Why do you make job. it my fault? Jeez. Um, <laughs> you, you listed it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is interesting from a few different points of view. And I think I've probably covered, um, I'll say technology like this more than once over the last year. So Lexon, L-E-X-O-N.org is a, um, it's a new programming language, relatively new. That's intended to be for it, it's plain text, so it's it's designed to be. And we've heard about you can make your code human readable, or you can make Perl human readable. Sorry for triggering people, but you know there's ways you can take uh, um, our standard common three four GLs and make them um, uh, human readable. But this language from the beginning is with that in in its in its heart and its design. So they, they've got a few examples like how do you do escrow and just sort of read it off really quickly to give people an example. Um, they'll have a pair in quotes is a person period. Next line payee in quotes is a person. Next line um, arbitrary is a, is a person. Then payment is an amount. Fee is an amount. So that's the first five lines of this code. And then the pair pays a payment into escrow, appoints the payee, appoints the arbiter, and also fixes the fee. So this whole thing is, is really just English, right? So I don't know if they go support other languages. Um, excuse me, human languages. Uh, um, go down a rat hill there, but yeah. So that's that's the intention of what they're doing. It's supposed to be very easily read, understandable. I think they're. Um, I could see space for you know um, GPT since it's not a future, so you have a little more flexibility with how you write it versus having to have their exact syntax. Um, but the reason I brought it up here is for two points. One, think about that now from a security point of view. If you've got something, I mean, really, what they're doing is they're. It's a very um, tightly typed and, and scoped language. Um, obviously, also, there's a very fixed number of things it can do. That should improve the security of it, it is my first thought. So I'll leave it as a uh, um, you know homework for our listeners. <laughs> How can this actually be manipulated for bad um, or for other than intended? How about that? Uh, and then the second point is when you hit this website, um, it is so much the difference between a, a crypto project versus like something like Clang or Trail of Bits, whereas that part of our um, larger technology world, they seem to really know how to focus on um, making something sexier, making something interesting, right? Like the splash screen, and this is like, I don't know where they got it. I'm, I'm now actually curious if this is- I think it's from- it must, no, it, it must I be thought fun. it was iRobot, but I think it's something different. Oh, I was figuring, well, I was looking for if it's getting funding from like a startup or something, but like mm -hmm. this is a very flashy design site. Um, and and the reason I bring this up is not just for from security point of view, but to all our nerds in general, if you want to get, and we talk about this a lot too, we talked last week about um, conferences and how you do a talk and how you do all that, but like the splashiness of something, it takes a lot of work or resources, but like it makes a big difference in so many ways. Um, so... And I mean, that's that in a way is sort of what this programming language is about, right? Is can we make it simple enough for someone to write a contract without going and learning um, Clang or the Clang lies or, you know, all those other things. So that sort of wraps the whole thing together and maybe that improves security. Now I'm reaching. Yeah, I think th there, I th what I will add is uh, two things. One, I would love to hear about the 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 legal and lawyers' approach to this because of misplaced commas and the construction <sighs> of clauses, uh, because that's really where law that that's the whole reason we have courts and decisions and judges to uh, 
resolve these disputes about what does this word mean or what did this clause mean or what, you know, the, these external events that these might be leading to. So uh, I'm just going to um, leave that as my comment number one. Comment number two was uh, a teaser for next week. As John was saying, you know, how to generate curiosity, I will say, or, you know, you don't want to just have something that is all fluff and presentation, but there's nothing that is like meaty below it that you're talking about. And I don't think that's the, your what your point here, but um, how do you write something, present something that generates curiosity, gains attention so that someone reads through it, pays attention, and ideally understands uh, what you're trying to get across? So something that we'll continue to talk about. Um, but I'm going to use that as a segue. That was talking about smart contracts and perhaps ML, ML and AI and chat GPT. And then you've got another article that is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Maybe um, AI doesn't solve everything. Maybe people can still take simple approaches and simple solutions to solve things like DOS. Yes. Um, we have a few uh, LLM and AI stories there. So thanks for the, the last. Let's try to figure out where we're going here. Um, yeah, this is from, so for folks who don't know, we think about the two things. We think about national labs and we think about, you know, um, uh, Lawrence Livermore, we think about Los Alamos, we think about Oak Ridge back on the East Coast in the US. Um, and for those who don't know outside, these are um, large um, government funded organizations specifically to do hard science and heavy science, right? So like um, uh, Lawrence Livermore here of the week and what in California was announced to have um, replicated their example, their um, their research to create a fusion um, uh, reaction that had more energy coming out of it than going in. So these are like really intense, large projects. Um, anyways, with that background, there's one more which we very seldom think about. Pacific Northwest National Lab is in um, uh, uh, southern end of Washington. Uh, it's where they were doing some of the earlier um, uh, nuke tests and uh, t training um, around um, both uh, and it doesn't matter. I'm going too far sideways. Sorry. Um, but they're worth checking out for folks who don't know about them. But anyway, so new paper, our new uh, papers are coming. This is the press release on it. And, and what, what's going on here is they've got, you know, some science, science excuse me, some security folks at the science place. Um, and like all science places do have security people. Uh, and what they're doing here is they're like, we're getting a lot of DOS, DOS attacks or they're getting a lot of inbound um, uh, traffic of interest, let's say, to their websites. Okay. For those who haven't figured, who haven't done DOS work, it's it's pretty difficult at scale to figure out what's a DOS attack. Um, maybe you know there's something new on the front page of a website like that that LL, the, excuse me, the Lawrence Livermore story, and people are going to go see that. So how do you know what's good versus bad? Um, there's all sorts of products out there about um, detecting DOSes, or you can go and you know pay someone like uh, Cloudflare or Akamai and have them deal with this. Um, all these things cost money. So what these guys did is like, okay, can we create a um, a better way of, of a higher, more accurate way of detecting DOS on our networks. And what they figured out is they don't have to do machine learning and training it to realize what's good traffic versus bad traffic. Uh, if you look in a nutshell, if you look at the entropy of um, these network connections, so to sort of give part of the story away, what they figured out is if it's generally um, just general people coming to the website, it's a relatively small number of people going to a relatively large number of different links on the site, right? So they sort of click around because they're they're interested. They read one, then they click through. Versus with a DOS attack, the entropy of where they're going is usually just to a single page, 
But on the other side, the entropy of the number of users, quote unquote users, is really, really high, right? So this is the basis of their um, research. And then they figured out over time that they're able to get massively more accurate than using machine learning. So all that to say, um, you know, we're getting a lot of stuff out of the GPTs and the LLMs and the, um, the MLs and all the acronyms, but maybe we can just look at, at math, um, which is what those things are. But let's look just purely at the math itself and, and some stats and in some cases, at least get better results. So I thought that was interesting. It is fun. And um, let's just let's just look at the math. I, I, I love that phrase, you know, being a math geek myself. I'm going to use that as well to pull in the article on attacking LLMs now as well, John. Yes. And this is... The website is called LLM-Attack. But what was neat about this is not it, it's not yet another list of prompt engineering or manual ways of just, you know, try, trying to bypass the guardrails, to use our phrase of the day, that are built into LLMs. What they've done is they've gone and looked at the model, looked at how these were trained. Um, many of them, you know, a handful of them are open source. And they said, ah, what would be the suffix, to use the, the term that they have, that would be the adversarial suffix, to just append to a prompt that would bypass a control. Now, they use some slightly silly things like build a bomb, steal from a, from a, from a charity, but they get their point across by saying, show me how to steal from a charity. The, LL, the, the chat GPT says, I can't do that, Dave. You know, some other denial. So you add their adversarial suffix, and what's neat is that it's this combination of syntax and words that's still human understandable, human readable, but is a way that it just nudges all those probability paths and uh, to get the LLM to say, oh, this is what you asked for, I'll give you this, and uh, based on basically probability to, to do a lot of hand-waving. So that was really neat. I thought it was really clever research. And... Um, I'll throw it over to you in one second, just as I say, one of their other points is that this is pretty fundamental. So they can automatically generate these bypasses now by targeting a model. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a cat and mouse and a pretty awesome way to break a lot of these chat GPT types of approaches. Yeah, I don't have too much to add on this. I saw this as well. I thought it was interesting. But what was the most interesting part to me, which is um, you know, we've got a few articles here around testing also, and we talked about architecture and how you how you do some of these things in the, the last half. Um, I don't think I would have, if I was assigned to test something like this and, and gone through, and the, the question comes back to, if make be accurate on this, if I was asked to test a GPT or an LLM or a, a, a chatbot, I don't know if one of my top 10 things would have been to do some of these um, character insertions that they did. Just from the point of view of, I look at these and they, they look a little bit like SQL injection-ish, a little bit, um, but they are they look like injection escapes. Um, they're obviously some type of escape. But so it's, it's interesting that they went down that path and found that um, without using a fuzzer. Again, we don't always need the tools. Humans are pretty good. Um, but at the same time, on the other hand, I would have expected the backends to be catching the stuff and filtering it before it even handed it to the the GPT. So I thought that was again okay. There's there's space there to play more. I think. Yes, and so we look forward to seeing a lot of cool research coming out in that area. Um, and speaking of jailbreaks, I'm going to switch to a completely different type of technology, uh, cars. And just last week, we were talking with Eve Mailer about identity in cars. And this week at Black Hat, some researchers are talking about. Um, two things. I'll read. So no, no big spoilers because this is from their abstract. 
They um, were able to get an unpatchable AMD-based Tesla jailbreak so they could basically run arbitrary uh, software on the infotainment panel. Um, oh, what a word there. But the other thing that was really neat about the, our discussion with cars and identity is that they were able to abstract, quote, an otherwise vehicle-unique hardbound RSA key used to authenticate and authorize a car in Tesla's internal service network. So... Um, that's pretty interesting. And, you know, I don't know what they will, what sort of attack scenarios and fun things they will do, whether they have ghost cars driving around, cars driving to different places, or just unlocking the seat warmers of your car. So you don't have to, you know, pay the subscription for, for silly things like that. So not too much more detail that we have at the moment, but I'm going to be paying attention to this Wednesday, August 9th. If you're in uh, Vegas for Black Hat, go check out the presentation. Um, a, a phrase just caught my attention, which sounds a uh, um, horrible and wonderful. Um, <laughs> we recommend using the ten, the ten, the Teensy 4.0 development board for the voltage glitching that is readily usable with our open source attack firmware. Um, man, oh, I'll, I'll go next sentence too. An SPI flash programmer is required, and a logic analyzer can greatly help to debug the overall stack. I've got all these pieces. I can't imagine them hooking them up to my car. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that that's that's the part you know we we talked about this with Eve is like um yep. okay do you do you go and buy the ECU off of eBay or you know buy like maybe go out to the junkyard and find a trash car but um yeah that's going to be a fun talk when it comes out. That is and yeah that, that that's an expensive lab to uh, do yeah. some hobby hacking on. So uh please do like and subscribe because we need more sponsors so we can afford that lab. <laughs> um <laughs> Let's see, where do we go from here? So a couple, try to, low on time, a couple other things that perhaps I'll mention, but weren't too interesting, I think. Uh, speaking of glitching and, um, you know, getting into firmware, hardware, there was Collide Plus Power, there was another CPU-based uh, research. Uh, we've talked about this a lot, John, not sure there's much you want to add to that. There's also a Rust Lang article that I threw in there, kind of more as just a reminder that, yeah, go move to Rust, don't try to rewrite existing code into to Rust because that's fraught with failure. Just write new code in that way. And I think I've kind of exhausted what we've talked about that without repeating anything else uh, uh, we can do and there. And for those who are playing along at home, I am still working on rewriting application security in Rust. Um, I'll, I'll have it done pretty soon. I'll, I'll let you guys know, but we, we are still working on that. Um, I'll, I'll open that up to alpha testing pretty soon. Uh, Power. Um, the one comment on this one is this was it was interesting to see that it's it's cache based. Um, I think some of the other ones we have have been as well. But what they're doing here is they they flush a cache or they 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 fill a cache. So when you um, um, switch back to the next process, um, they have to go and replace their data, and then they're able to base off that to do um, out of band um, uh, um, uh, power monitoring and seeing that oh this has been actually been put back into the cache again. So. Interesting. That's a very particular attack, but still sort of interesting. Um, let's see. Do we have time for one more? Yeah, I think we do. How about the um, bleeding pipe? Um, you found this one, another RCE, uh, but it's in a game. Which it's when I saw it during the week, I'm like, oh, it's in a game. I just it, it didn't catch my attention for whatever reason. But tell us a little more. Yeah, and I think part of the reason hopefully it will catch your attention is because you know it's it's an RCE. It's basically a kind of a Generic yet again, a, a Java deserialization attack, but um, it targets Minecraft, and uh, Minecraft is pretty well known. And I was looking at this from almost a, a security awareness, security training sort of perspective, in the sense of Java deserialization, 
been talked about for a long time. Perhaps it could be stale. But if you're talking, if you're doing a security education, security awareness, you could use a an example from 20 years ago that's never been updated and that's talking about some piece of software no one recognizes. Or you can say, what if you're playing Minecraft and this happened? You know, it's the idea of more just the, the pedagogical aspect of how to be relevant, how to make something that is going to resonate with your audience, as well as be topical. This is something that is code that's written today rather than 20-year-old code that has a vulnerability in it. So I was sort of throwing it in there as in the sense of nothing too particularly new about Java deserialization, but why not talk about things that are happening today? And, and using that for, um, for getting the, the attention and interest and curiosity, that'll be my word of the day with uh, developers. Yeah, that, and it's, it's funny, as you mentioned that the Minecraft, Minecraft is, it's, it's a pretty wonderful thing from the point that it's flexible enough that people are able to do stuff like this. I'll always remember, I can't remember his name. Um, I was at a Docker meetup in San Francisco many years ago, and um, someone brought in their kid who was showing how to start Docker containers from within Minecraft. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, it really was. And it stuck in my head like many years later. I'm sure that kid's probably in college right now and like a PhD. But um, yeah, it, it, it's 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 always good to be able to get things hands on. Um, you know, I think there's, I think we've thrown these in a few, here a few times. So maybe we should talk about hands on and, and talk about the, either the CISAs, excuse me, CISAs. Yeah. Um, there's like, Angel saying just when I pronounce it right, um, but this is a strategic uh, cybersecurity strategic plan or that White House um, paper. I don't know if either one of those two you want to go out on. Yeah, I think maybe the I'll mention the the, the White House plan. It was just I thought it was a nice follow up to the public speaking article from from last week because it, you can touch on aspects of internal training. How do you develop security awareness programs? Just in the sense of it wants to educate cybersecurity. But maybe let's go talk a bit more on, and leave it up to you. The, the CISA strategic plan has three broad things, talking about address immediate threats, harden the terrain, drive security at scale, which altogether sound very reasonable. You know, I think they're sort of saying patching, but they're not necessarily saying patch everything. They're not necessarily saying, you know, it's not vulnerability driven. It's, it's, it's talking and shifting, I think, the conversation more to secure defaults, secure by design. Um, and I might be reading a little too much into this or my own personal biases, but um, I do, it, it is really neat to see how this is framed. That, that's why I wanted to highlight it. Um, yeah, man, I thought I had better link for this. I'm looking for it. So I, I want to hit the, the White House one mm -hmm. really quickly and try not to be um, jaded about it. I, I like what, so again, for folks outside the US, um, this uh, um, National Cyber Workforce and Education Strategy. So they're, they're really trying to say that we need, we all know we need more people in InfoSec, AppSec, Pick Your Sec, um, ArchSec. And the concept here is like from a top level national point of view, US national, um, how can we, how can we drive that? So, you know, Equip every American with foundational cyber skills, transform cyber education, expand and enhance America's cyber work workforce. For those who don't know, usually when you see the word cyber, it's coming from a government organization. Strengthen and federal the cyber workforce. So they obviously care more about the, the federal jobs than the, the corporates because it's um, the corporates usually pay pretty well and the feds not as good. So it's harder to get folks over there. But um, 
Right. This isn't a short-term thing, right? It's it's a very long-term project because they want to go and actually bring people from, I believe, high schools and up. So more power to them. If I can help them anyway, great. All that type of thing. Um, at the same time, it, it, I think we all want to see what can we do sooner, better. So um, it, it's a good to read um, and think about and think about how we can um, affect in our daily lives. I want to switch over to the other one, the cybersecurity strategic plan. Um, this is interesting to me from a few reasons. One that it you know it has those three points you mentioned. There's one of these links in here goes to actual uh, strategy in more detail. Um, and what I, I thought it was like nine points is what I remember reading, um, unfortunately. But anyways, this this three will sort of start at the high level. Why this is interesting to me, I can't remember, can't remember if I mentioned on here or not. This is my last week for not for ASW, for um, I'm doing a online class through Harvard on strategy execution. So basically, from a senior manager point of view, how do I how do you, anybody take the strategy that you have come up with for a company? and then execute on those points. Like, how do you make sure things get done? Which is, it's actually really interesting. It's been a really interesting class. Um, but then you start thinking about, well, what is strategy? There's strategy at a, you know, there's a strategy at the government level we just talked about with the, you know, how do we increase number of, of cyber um, employees? And then there's strategy at like um, a CISA level of like, okay, well, how do we um, come up with a strategic plan for security for the, for the country? Then you go to okay. Well, what's strategy for a company? It's I want to you know make people's lives better by having a better security tool. And then there's strategy for like how do we actually execute? How do we actually drive that the vision for the company? So it keeps going further down and down and down. And where it was interesting to me is thinking about this. Like, what does strategy mean? Like, right, the, the Harvard class isn't thinking about security strategy, but the same point of view is like okay, well, the same tools exist, and like the same tools are able to be used for once you figure out that you want to focus on addressing immediate threats plus hardening terrain plus um, driving security at scale. Then it comes down to okay, well, what? How do we actually get there? How do we staff for that? How do we, um, you know, how do we monitor that we're making progress against that? And then how do we make sure that we keep people on those? You know, speaking of guardrails, how do we make sure that the way that we're working on improving that security is what we want, not someone comes up with, well, we're going to buy a tank. Um, so it was interesting from that from that point of view to me think about like you know what strat strategy sounds like sort of a very managey type thing but it's sort of how if in a mature org man I can't speak today in a mature org that's sort of how you come up with these strategies and say this is where we're going this is what we want to do and then how do you execute upon those so um, it's an interesting space to think about um, if our listeners are curious about that I'm happy to talk more about that or happy to bring someone in. Um, or if you just want to talk more about like, you know, glitching Teslas, we can go down that path too. We can go down all the paths. We've got many, many, many articles to read, many guests to bring on, and many episodes to to, to run throughout the rest of the year. So definitely, yeah, let us know. Let John know in particular what we could, there, there's a lot of different things that we'd love to hear more from him. And I think to sort of, as I wrap up too, to kind of reinforce your point about strategy, I looked at both of these two articles and in, in the show notes, I sort of riffed on them as they can be, use them as inspiration for just your own security awareness program, perhaps your security program if you're building it up early on. Because one of the things I'll just harp on is that in their um, Harden the Terrain, they're talking about understand how attacks really occur and how to stop them. And they're talking about like, how do we measure what was actually in place that stopped an intrusion or what could have been in place? And this is where I, I'm, I, I wish to see, so that I'm putting on my, my wishing hat of um, 
we're going to stop having to patch all the vulns. We're going to have to stop worrying so much about necessarily CVSS scores or EPSS scores. And we're going to see like known exploited vulns that come out of CISA. Or we know that FIDO2 based authentication is more resistant. So emphasize, uh, emphasize those, invest in those. And I think those represent a strategy um, as much as they represent a wish of mine for what the future might hold. But um, any, you brought this, you brought this all together, John. Why don't you uh, wrap us up with a, a thank you for for our listeners or some final words? Thank you, Mike. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's there, there's a lot of stuff in this space, right? It's and as as you're talking about that, I was thinking one of the interesting things for us is as the I'll say the nerds is where well we're always talking on the show about um, metrics and improving metrics and how do you find the metrics and that type of thing. It's still in our wheelhouse, we're used to thinking about that and, and being more stats based versus the the business folks that are in that class that I'm taking, they don't, you know, what's a monitoring system? They don't think about it. So we have a ton of, you know, really strong tools. We just need to figure out how do we work with them in different ways besides just saying there's 5,000 um, vulnerabilities that, that need to be patched. Um, but yeah, everyone, thanks for tuning in, like, and subscribe. And um, Mike, carry us out. Well, thank you very much, John. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And do please subscribe. Like he said, hit that like button. Check out the show notes. And speaking of detectives, check out Pulp Noir by Sunglasses Kid. We'll see you next time on Application Security Weekly.